0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hey
2: everyone, and welcome to my millennial money. I'm Glenn James. And today on the podcast, I'll be talking with Paula Pant out of America. Before we get into that, two things. Number one, this year, if you do listen to the show as soon as they go live, Thursdays will be more of an in-depth chat and we'll cover different topics, where Tuesday's episodes will be more of a QA and a that covers a variety of different questions and a a heap of different topics to make it really dynamic. And we are looking forward to having a fresh new format for the show this year. Secondly, we have just launched My Money Journal. Now, if you want to set the year right or if you're going into a new season and you want to really get your thoughts out of your mind onto paper, the My Money Journal, it will help you do that. There's a series of different questions, different topics to guide you through step by step would encourage you to maybe buy two, give one to a friend and do it together. But it really is a way to get thoughts out of your head, get some clarity onto paper. And you can get these for under $50. It's a way to support the show, but mainly it's a way to give you clarity about what you're doing with your life. If you are struggling to you know, break through some roadblocks or anything like that, there's a heap of stuff in there. Thank you to so many people who have already purchased these. We did sell a heap of uh, pre-release ones uh, at the end of last year and we've had such great feedback. So, thank you so much. Paula Pant, she is a big deal. Now, if you haven't listened to her show, she's got a podcast called Afford Anything. She's out of America. She lives in uh, Vegas She's had over 13 million listens of a podcast. The podcast sits in the top 50 business podcasts in America, so that's just huge. She's spoken at Google headquarters and they actually featured that interview on the main YouTube page out of America for some time. She's featured regularly in Forbes, New York Times, the Washington Post, just to name a few. She won the Plutus Award, which is the highest award in personal finance uh, in digital media for Podcast of the Year in 2017. And I was actually at that awards ceremony at FinCon. So, that was fun to um, to, to see that then and actually to have Paula on the show today. She's very nice. She's pragmatic and she's a lot smarter than me. I could talk to her all day. I won't hold you up now. Let's uh, let's get into it. And thank you so much for your support this year. And if you do find the podcast of benefit, who can you forward this episode to uh, who might need a bit of encouragement with their money? Thanks so much, guys. Paula, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us on On behalf of the My Millennial Money listeners. uh, How are you?
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing? Very excited for the new year.
2: Yeah, so new year uh, and I thought I would introduce uh, you to our audience. You run a podcast called Afford Anything. So can you explain to my listeners a bit about yourself and how you got into the personal finance space?
0: Absolutely. So I've always been fascinated by personal finance, and that I know is a statement that many people find strange. But money, like time, like energy, like attention, is a limited resource. And as a result, deciding how to spend that incredibly limited resource is at its core deciding what's important to you. What are your values? What are your priorities? What kind of life do you want to build? And so I've always been fascinated by money, not for the purpose of uh, dripping with luxury diamonds, (laughs) nothing like that, but I've always been fascinated by money because of the fact that it is a paper representation of what matters.
2: Yes. And I guess, what was your background before you're, you're doing the podcast and the online money stuff?
0: So I was a journalist, um, a very unimpressive, low-key one. <laughs> I, uh, well, I finished college in 2005, and I majored in sociology, thinking that I would go on to become a professor and you know be a researcher, and uh, decided my senior year, I decided that I didn't want to do that. And so I was about to graduate with a degree in sociology, which is not the type of thing that uh, causes a lot of employers to be beating down your door. And uh, in the meantime I was reading the newspaper for hours and hours every single day. I was like skipping classes to read the newspaper, to sit in my room and read the newspaper. And so I thought to myself, well, if I enjoy reading and particularly news reading this much, then that's clearly the field that I should go into. And so I spotted a flyer on campus of where they a bunch of media people from my city were going to all come and meet with graduating seniors. And I figured, you know what? You, I'm not a a graduating senior from the journalism school, but I bet that if I just walk in there, I bet they'll let me in without question. And sure enough, they did. And I introduced myself to the editor of the local paper and convinced him to hire me on as a freelancer. So I started freelancing for them. Then they offered me an unpaid internship and then they gave me a full-time job. So I was the rare bird who ended up becoming a full-time newspaper reporter without a degree in journalism. Uh, And I did that for a few years. And then I realized freelancing is really the way to go not only can you have more flexibility but also there's greater potential for money and I I think in journalism what's strange about that as compared to a lot of other industries is that you very often can make significantly more when you're freelancing when you're working for yourself than you could uh, having a a full-time job
2: Right. And and so I guess you thought, I, I enjoy writing. I like writing. Oh, I like personal finance. I like money. That's kind of simmering in the background. Mm-hmm. And the two kind of converged at some point.
0: Exactly. Exactly. When I decided to become a full-time freelancer, someone gave me the advice to write about whatever I love to read the most. And I've always loved reading about personal finance. So it just seemed like a perfect fit.
2: Yeah. And I just want to pause there because if you're listening to this and it's the start of a new year and you're wondering, you know, what do I want to do with my life? Often, and I was the same and Paula and I are the same age, like I was 25 years old and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And a mentor said, well, just do what you're doing now, but for yourself. Often, some of the stuff that we are born to do is right in front of us and we don't even see it.
0: Exactly, exactly. And it could be something as simple as sitting in your dorm room reading a newspaper. Mm. You know, that could actually end up being the answer.
2: I love that. Now, this fire stuff, you're a bit of a figurehead in the fire world. You know, between this on the spectrum of the most extreme minimalist to the yeah. other end, and you got the wolf of Wall Street, uh, <laughs> where, <laughs> it's a loaded question, where do you sit on the fire spectrum? Because uh, for me personally, like just uh, listening to your stuff, you're probably one of the most pragmatic FIRE people. Uh, so what's your view on FIRE and where do you see yourself?
0: Hmm. Well, so FIRE, um, for the the listeners who aren't familiar with it, it is a philosophy in which you generate passive income, typically through investments, that is substantial enough that it can cover your cost of living. And the, the acronym FIRE... Um, stands for financial independence and retire early. But those two concepts are very different. Financial independence is simply having enough money through your investments that you have a safety net and you know that you'll be okay. It's not necessarily going to give you a wolf of Wall Street lifestyle, but you know if if you have financial independence that your investments will be enough such that if your brother gets sick, and he lives in another country, and you have to uh, quit your job and fly to be at, at his bedside because he has a terminal illness and he has six months to live. You know, the last thing that you want to be doing during those six months, those critical six months, is worrying about how you're going to buy groceries or how you're going to keep uh, the lights on. And so, financial independence is simply that that security, that safety net, particularly here in the United States, there's, there is no other safety net. And so it, it, it's building that safety net for yourself so that if the worst were to happen, you'd still be okay. That's financial independence. And then there's the other part of FIRE, the R-E of FIRE is retire early. And that part, I do not like or subscribe to at all. Um, That is not me. And if I could wave a magic wand and make that part of fire go away, if it could just be fi, I'd be very Mm. happy. But unfortunately, the, the two concepts in many people's minds have come to be conflated as one. And so, a big part of my mission is to separate those out. Just because you have money doesn't mean you need to retire.
2: Absolutely. Because that sense of purpose, and I did a a podcast episode on the My Millennial Money Express podcast, and I called it Fire vs. LOOT. And I believe in my life, I use the acronym LOOT, Mm L-O-O-T, life on own terms. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. once we get to that stage where the life is on our own terms, it just takes all that pressure off because... We just need that sense of purpose. Now, one of the favourite things that I hear you talk about is the whole trade-off, that you can actually afford anything. I want to drill down, uh, and even if you've had some, own, some of your own personal experiences, about trade-offs that you might have used in your own life.
0: Ooh, financial trade-offs?
2: I'll take anything at this stage, but let's start with financial. <laughs> it's
0: a very good question. So, uh, when I was saving up to travel... I, um, cause I spent some time traveling around. I spent 10 months in Australia.
2: Woo. Paula's sister lives in Australia, everyone.
0: Yes. Yes, <laughs> she does. So which means that clearly I need to come back. <laughs> totally. Uh, but while I was saving up to go travel, let's see, I drove a car that was valued at $400. And when I tell people that, they, they say, Oh, you mean you paid 400 a month? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I paid $400 for the entire car. It was it was not very safe. It was, in hindsight, not a safe thing to drive. But, uh, you know, I drove a $400 car. I lived in a very small studio basement apartment where it was so small that while I was standing at the kitchen sink washing the dishes, I could kick one leg back behind me and my foot would be touching my bed. That's wow. how small it was. Wow. And so, you know, I lived in this tiny, tiny little apartment. I drove this cheap car, although I rarely drove it because I didn't want to put gas in it. So I only drove it when I absolutely needed to. The rest of the time I walked uh, or took the bus or rode my bike. I bought clothes from thrift stores. You know, I did all of that because I had this thing that I really wanted to do, which was go travel, go to Australia, you know, um, go to Southeast Asia, go to uh, Thailand and, and Indonesia. And when I finally did, when I started um, traveling to those countries, so many people would say to me, I would love to do that, but I can't afford it, you know? And so they're sitting there, you know, they've driven a nice car. They're ordering a, an $8 beer at the bar or a $12 martini. Uh, and they're telling me that they can't afford to go to Thailand when I knew that that they could they just couldn't do it all. And so that's very much where my, the name of my podcast, Afford Anything, comes from. It's the notion that you can afford anything, but not everything.
2: Yeah, I love that. And I guess like leading on to this kind of discussion around personal finance, because I want to chat to, uh, to Paul about personal finance, investing, property, and uh, some other stuff. I'm of the view that I'll have goals and I'll just one at a time, bam, bam bam, bam, where, you know, there's people that they might set up five different savings accounts and this is the account for the new dog. This is the account for travel. This is the investing account. This is the account for the home deposit. This is the account for X, Y, Z, whatever. What's your own philosophy with goals and the trade-offs? Do you, you know, are you kind of a sprinkle everywhere and we slowly rise the, the tide or are you just like, bam, one at a time?
0: Mm. So, when it comes to particular savings goals, we know that behavior when it, when it comes to anything in finance, behavior is so much more powerful than math. Every it, finance is kind of like diet and nutrition. Mm. Um we can know quote unquote what we should do, but actually doing it is the hard part. Totally. And so uh, my recommendation is to start from a place of self-knowledge. If you are the type of person who is motivated by picking one goal, pouring everything you have into that one goal, doing that till it's done and then moving on. If that's the thing that gets you motivated, then do that because that motivation means that you will most likely stick with it and you will most likely save more than you otherwise would. And ultimately mm-hmm. it's those contributions that uh matter most. Um and and you know conversely, if you are somebody who likes the idea of having five different goals and then watching yourself make progress in all of those, then go ahead and split your money between these five different savings accounts. Um, Again, whatever motivates you Mm. is the one that's best. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good.
2: Yeah, I love that. And I think it's that you've just got to play to your strengths. Play. You've got to hack yourself. Hack that person in the mirror. Uh, where I personally, I'm a spender, and I have to remove money out of sight because if it's laying around, it grows legs. And it's just amazing how fast money can disappear. Yeah. Um, what's your relationship with debt? So, mm. credit cards, investment property debt. What's what's your philosophy or relationship with debt?
0: That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that because I I, this is one of my favorite topics and no one's asked about it in a while. So I am a fan of what I would refer to as cash flow positive debt um, in limited amounts, which means that if you are taking on debt, that you have a reasonable expectation that you can invest that money and generate enough cash flow such that... Your cash flow covers the debt payment plus extra, which means that debt is not taking money out of your pocket. It is putting money into your pocket, put, you know, net money into your pocket at the end of the day. In that case, I am okay with a moderate, reasonable amount of debt. I still would not get too carried away, but a, a low level amount of cash flow positive debt, I'm okay with. And then for most people, When they're buying a home for themselves, uh, that is not cash flow positive. That is negative. Like your personal home drains money from your bank account every single month. But uh, given the fact that most people can't pay cash for a house, I think that a a reasonable uh, mortgage, and that means less than what the banks will approve you for, is is probably fine for most people under, you know, assuming the rest of their financial life is stable.
2: Do you have a typical wallet in America? I've got a lot of American friends and they've got 15 credit cards and they play the points game and I've got my target card and I've got my Home Depot card. Do you do any of that crap? Excuse my my view of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the hacking game. Honestly, no, I do not. My desire for simplicity Mm. outweighs when I keep my life simple in terms of having only one credit card at a time or maybe two at, at the most at a time. If I keep my life simple like that, then I can focus on growing my business. Um, mm. I can focus on earning more. I can focus on entrepreneurship and side hustles. But if I fragment or split my attention, then all of the time that I'm spending playing the, the card hacking game is time that I'm not doing other things. And now, that being said, for some people, for some, some people do card hacking like it's a part-time job. Like, that is their side hustle. Yeah, you know, totally. that is their part-time job. And if that's the approach that you take, if if you truly are treating it like it's a job and you recognize that you're doing it to the exclusion of other types of jobs or other types of businesses that you could be running, all right, that's a different story. But don't let it be a distraction.
2: Yeah, and I think that it ties in with that you can afford anything with your time. And exactly. F- for me, I, I don't even have a credit card because I just want simplicity. I just want to automation simplicity. And I just don't care for that because I've got better things to do with my time. And I hate getting uh, paperwork.
0: Mm-hmm. Same.
2: <laughs> what are some of the common traps that you find new podcast listeners get called in? Like, what are you hearing from new members of your world?
0: I think that probably the biggest trap is that a lot of people want to know what to do without a deep understanding of why. And so there are there are a lot of people, particularly people who are new to the world of personal finance and, and money management, who just, they want a recipe, they want a step-by-step set of instructions. And again, to, to go back to the nutrition uh, analogy, the problem with that is that there are a lot of different theories and frameworks for what makes a good handling of money. In the same way that in the world of nutrition, there's... You know, people who advocate for eating vegetarian or vegan, there's people who advocate for paleo, there's uh, people who advocate for keto, there's the intermittent fasting crowd, but then there's also the eat six meals a day, small meals a day crowd. You know, you you hear all of these different theories and ideas, and per- you hear all these different perspectives about what constitutes healthy eating. And I think that for any person to make an informed decision, they need to first survey the the landscape broadly to get at a, a high level overview of what the range of philosophies and frameworks are. Then they need to find the one that most closely matches their inclinations and they should have some, some critical thought put behind it. You know, why is it that whichever eating philosophy you connect with, um, you know, c- can you critically explain and defend why it is that you've chosen that particular mm. one? A- and managing money is the same way investing in particular. Um you know, y- you look at just the world of stock investing. I mean, there's buy and hold uh, investing, which is what I advocate. Like buy and hold index low cost index fund investing which is very similar to the philosophy that's espoused by John Bogle, the creator of Vanguard, and his followers are referred to as Bogleheads. Mm -hmm. And the fire movement uh, is kind of, it's not specifically a Boglehead movement, but they have a lot of similarities. They're kind of like the keto and paleo, uh, or, you know, keto-paleo-primal, like in the way that they're sort of more around that end of the spectrum uh, same with like Boglehead and Fire Movement they're they're mm. all kind of on like closely related bunched on one end of the spectrum but then you've got these other people who are really into cryptocurrency and they're really into or you know day trading or all kinds of other ways to manage money or to invest and the problem to to your question this is a long answer to a short question I know but the issue that beginners can sometimes fall into is that they don't necessarily know that whoever they encounter first is espousing only one of a range of philosophies. Mm. And so there's a higher likelihood that they will just obey whoever they encounter first uh, without thinking to question what they're being taught Mm. because they don't know that there are other types of teachings out there.
2: Yeah, that's actually really good. And if you are new to My Millennial Money, thanks for listening to this episode. And I just want to say, like, I am not your guru. I am just a facilitator of this community. And the right way for you is the way that works. And what I would also do, I like what you said about critically defending and, you know, the people that get caught up in all this, you know, high risk speculative stuff. Just look at the fruit of their life, if they are still working a 12-hour day but they're a a day trader by night and all this stuff, well, is the fruit there that they can actually do it full-time or are they caught up themselves? So, which is a whole other topic,
0: Mm -hmm. what's the
2: best way to influence or inspire a partner or a friend to improve their money habits?
0: Mm. I would start with the why behind it. Um, Most of the time, people aren't motivated by the idea of increasing their savings rate from 13% to 17%, but they are motivated by the idea of being able to fully pay off their student loans or being able to make a down payment on a a house or being able to support their child going to school. Um, And so when you have that clear why, then... Every sacrifice that you make along the way, whether that's a sacrifice of uh, consumer spending, or a sacrifice of time in the form of um, earning more, you know, developing a side hustle, building more income, like every single sacrifice that you make along the way, has a reason behind it and therefore does not feel simply like you're just moving around numbers on a spreadsheet.
2: Mm, mm. yeah that's that's interesting. I want to move along to investing now. You've talked before about the cognitive biases that interfere with one's ability to make smart investing choices. What are some examples of things that might be getting in our way?
0: Sure. With regard to cognitive biases, there's, I'll just give a few examples. So one example of a cognitive bias is what's called the availability heuristic, which means that whatever information most readily comes to mind, Tends to get overweighted in terms of its importance. So, uh, right after the 2008 2009 Great Recession, because a recession and a housing crash could so readily come to mind because people were so recently scarred by it, uh, people overweighted the probability of a housing crash or a recession. And even in the 10 years that followed, while we Ah, uh, in the United States, we were in a, an eleven-year bull run, uh, the longest bull market that we've had ever in U.S. history. I know Australia is in a much longer bull run than than. So you guys have got us beat. But, and that's
2: an increasing market, everybody.
0: <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so uh, in in the U.S., we were not. Our markets have not consistently gone up for nearly as long as Australia's have. But still, in the years. From 2009 until 2020, our markets went up for those 11 consecutive years. And yet, time and time again, people kept saying, oh, the market's going up, I'm afraid it's going to crash. Oh, it's going up, I'm afraid it's going to crash. And a big part of why they were saying that is because it had recently crashed. And so the availability heuristic meant that that recent crash could so could easily come to mind. Mm. and And so it received more importance in their memory than it actually deserved. They weren't looking at the fundamentals of what makes markets crash. They were just remembering how recently it was. Um, That's one example of a Mm. cognitive bias. Another example is what's called confirmation bias, where we tend to seek out information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs, and we tend to disregard information that does not confirm our pre-existing beliefs. And so if you, uh, for example, are already interested in the idea of the fire movement, you're more likely to seek out people in the fire movement as opposed to, you know, people who, uh, you know, are, are high speculative day traders. That, there's another example. Mm. Uh, there's one more that I will give. And actually, you you kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, I'll call you out here in a friendly way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when you talked about evaluating an idea based on how the people who are espousing that idea live their lives, so you talked about that in in the context of, you know, are they still working a twelve-hour day, or you know, have have they made it? Essentially, that's actually it's a bias known as resulting where there's a difference between the soundness of the decision itself and the result that actually happens. So for example, if you are driving a car and you run a red light um, and there's no negative consequence, you uh, don't get in an accident, you don't get a ticket, and you make it to your destination faster, Like, does that mean that running a red light was a good idea? No, of course not. It happened to work out for you, you know. It happened to have, in that particular case, a positive result, but it was still inherently a bad idea. Mm. Um, similarly, you know, if you get into a car and you follow all the traffic laws, you wear your seatbelt, you're a careful driver, but you get very, very unlucky and something happens. Does that mean that your decision to to be a careful driver was a bad idea? No, it wasn't. You know, mm. so the soundness of the decision itself can't necessarily be judged by the result. And so this kind of logical sort of thinking fallacy known as resulting is when you conflate the the consequence with the decision-making process that led to it.
2: Wow, that's very deep.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I guess like, you know, we are talking about investing, like, and this is the trap where if you want to build your own portfolio of single stocks and you buy a stock and you might have purchased Afterpay 12 months ago and it's gone to the moon, you're not a good investor. You Mm -hmm. just got lucky. And that's the thing. The stock doesn't know that you purchased it. The stock doesn't know that you you owned it. Uh, And that, to me, is why I don't really do single stocks with more than 10% of my whole portfolio because- I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm a nobody and the market doesn't know who the hell Glenn James is, nor cares.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's all probabilistic thinking. You know, totally. in, in any decision that you make around investments, there are, there are no clear answers. And the best that you can do in terms of managing your money is to think through, all right, will, will this decision give me a higher likelihood or a lower likelihood of my desired outcome?
2: Yeah. Hey, did you remember that guy who was on Who Wants to be Patronised by a Millionaire? Uh, (laughs) Uh, So, that Millionaire show, I think it was in the States or the UK or somewhere, and he was like the smartest guy in America and he pulled out with three questions to go at 750K or something like that or, or 500K. And his whole basis, and I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote about this in Outliers, his whole basis was I came in with nothing. $500,000 or whatever it was, that's a crap load of money. I can guarantee and take that now. Mm. And I think that YouTube video, and I might share it in the Facebook group, it's very wise to, you know, to know that, you know, greed is real and you have to be really aware of that.
0: Yeah. In investing, um, sometimes that's referred to as like the goal of accumulation versus the goal of preservation. So oftentimes if you think about a, a person's lifetime, um when a person is in their 20s or 30s they and they're at the beginning of their investment journey and their money management journey the goal at that phase of life is wealth accumulation and so you take bigger risks because mm. you're in the accumulation phase whereas when you're in your 60s your 50s or 60s your goal at that time is preservation mm. and so you make very different decisions even in the same set of circumstances um, you would make very different decisions in your 60s because the goal has flipped from accumulation to preservation.
2: Yeah. Actually, on, on this accumulation thing, mm-hmm. you know, we're all on Facebook and we all see the questions and, you know, everyone writes, oh, I, I can buy this ETF for this many percentage point fees and this one's like 0.1 cheaper. I'm going to move all my money over there. I I think in my mind while we are setting up our life in this accumulation phase, we need to more focus on our ability to earn income, Mm -hmm. to pump a portfolio rather than spending all our time like we did the trade-off discussion before with splitting hairs for that 0.1, 0.2%. Because I don't know, I've kind of worked out realistically until you've got a portfolio of probably over $100,000, Mm-hmm. The best return you're going to get on that money is by you putting more money into it yourself.
0: Yep, absolutely. Heck yeah. Uh, one of my frustrations with a lot of the material that's out there around money management is that so much of it focuses on saving. Um, there's a lot of discussion around that and particularly on um, cutting back on consumer spending, mm-hmm. which is proportionately a very small amount of what a person actually spends. You mm. know, discretionary spending—restaurants, movies—even in the before COVID—is um, proportionately a much smaller line item in your budget than the the big three: housing, transportation, food. And in addition to that, um, for the amount of effort that people often put into averting discretionary or consumer spending, um, or or even a, even Averting any of the big three expenses for the amount of effort that people put into that, they can oftentimes do much better financially if they were to invest that same amount of time and energy and attention towards making more. Mm. Um, whether it's trying to get a promotion at work, or whether it means starting some type of a side hustle where you earn more on the side, you know, when when you're not at work and during your evenings and weekends. And I think. The reasons for that, there's less fear when the conversation is cutting back on expenses. You know, when the conversation is don't buy lattes and don't spend money on on fancy golf clubs or handbags, then there's no risk of failure. There's no fear of failure. Um, there's no imposter syndrome. Uh, and it's tangible, you know, and it, so it feels approachable. So you have this combination of factors in which... It's easy to visualize, and there's no real risk involved. Um, there's no fear that that you might fail. But when we're talking about earning more, number one, that's harder to visualize. Like if you don't have a concrete idea of what type of side hustle you might have, then it's hard to it's hard to picture it. You know that, that's the reason that people have vision boards. like yeah, it's hard to picture it if you don't really know what you're what you want. And on top of that, there's a risk of failure. And so, it becomes less kind of not talked about enough relative to how big of a game changer that could be.
2: Mm. Do you think while somebody is in their 20s and building their life and might want to own a home one day, uh, they're going to need a home deposit, Mm -hmm. do you think it's probably wise to get that big rock in their life done first before they start doing some wholesale long-term investing?
0: Uh, Well, the first thing I would do is question whether or not they actually do want to buy a home. Because in in many cities around, uh, uh, I mean, I can can certainly speak for the United States. In many major cities, it actually makes more sense to rent than it does to own. Um, And uh, typically in high cost of living areas, renting is often a better deal. So the first thing I would have that person do is question whether or not they should even own a home in the first place are they just buying into the not mathematically tested cliche of oh but if you're renting you're throwing money away well yeah if i'm eating i'm throwing money away too that's, on my if, yeah, groceries right. if i'm you know, breathing
2: i'm wasting money
0: <laughs> well it's just in, in no other consumer spending is referred to as throwing money away it's you know any other consumer spending the, the chair that I'm sitting in the sweater that I'm wearing the um, shampoo that I'm using none of that is called throwing money away that's called spending money on something that provides value but when it comes to the topic of housing all of a sudden it's no longer spending on something that provides value it's throwing money away it's it's baffling the way that these cultural ideas are fed to us.
2: Particularly when you actually need accommodation to live
0: in. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I need accommodation like I need toothpaste. Yeah. You know, and I need shampoo. It's just a basic thing that I need. And if tooth, if buying toothpaste is not throwing money away, then neither is renting an apartment.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And so that, so the first thing I would do to answer your question is I would certainly ask yourself if you even want to Um, If it even makes sense to purchase a home. Um, And if you live in a lower cost of living area, uh, then then perhaps the answer is yes. In a Mm. low cost of living area, oftentimes it does make more sense to own. In an expensive city, oftentimes it just makes more sense to rent.
2: The key is if you are living in an expensive city, don't get caught up in relatively high rent in that area because you still need to be putting your money to work.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this comes down to deciding what percentage of your income you want to spend on housing. Mm. And and that really leads to the bigger question of what percentage of your income overall do you want to spend versus what percentage of your income do you want to save? What I advocate that people do is practice what I refer to as the anti-budget, in which you decide how much money you want to save. And when I say save, I mean Anything that improves your net worth, so that could be literal savings in a savings account. It could be money that you put into your retirement accounts for retirement planning. It could be uh, money that you invest. It could be additional payments that you make on a debt um, above and beyond what the minimum payment that you owe. It, you know, so those aggressive aggressively paying down a debt, um, all of that, anything that improves your net worth is savings. So decide how much money that you want to save, pull that off the top first, and then whatever is left over is yours to spend.
2: Hey, uh, have you got 10 more minutes to uh, talk a little bit about property? Absolutely. All right. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back and we'll talk about
1: property and we'll go from there.
2: Hey everyone, you might not have heard. We've got a podcast called My Millennial Health. Jess, what are we covering? So many things, Glenn. We're talking food, nutrition, movement, mindset, sleep, so much more. My Millennial Health is your one-stop shop for anything to do
0: with your health and well-being.
2: Love that. And the best news, everyone, is I'm not on it because I've got no freaking idea about health. So make sure you subscribe to My Millennial Health wherever you're listening to this podcast. And I can't wait for you guys to see what My Millennial Health has installed. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks. So you own several investment properties.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What was or is the most challenging part of this process? Hmm. Was it the first one or was it dealing with five, six, seven sets of tenants?
0: Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I would say... Initially, probably the biggest challenge was sort of the the fear of the unknown. With the first one, the, the first time that you do anything, the first time that you drive a car, the first time that you swim in the ocean, um, the first time that you travel to a foreign country, um, the first time that you do anything, uh, it's, it's brand new. And you not only do you not know what you're doing— you don't know what you don't know. You know, like the the first time you travel to a foreign country and you get there and you realize that you don't know the currency exchange rate and you don't know how to get money out of an ATM and you don't know how to use a cell phone um and you don't know and then you you plug something in and that you brought from America and it it, it explodes because you don't know to, you know, like you know there's all of these details Like that, if it's your first time traveling, you didn't even think to check the voltage of uh, plugs in a foreign country because it just doesn't. You're so new to it that it just didn't even occur to you that that would be an issue, right? And the same is true with investing, Uh, with property investing, as well as any other type of investing. You know, you don't know what you don't know. But the thing is, with other types of investing, like if you're investing in mutual funds or index funds. Even though that is still investing and even though you still don't know what you're doing, for, for many people, or at least I can say for me, it didn't feel as scary because it wasn't literally staring me in the face. It wasn't physical. It wasn't tangible. It mm. wasn't visceral.
1: Mm. Whereas
0: with property investing, um, l- like anything that you're new to, you know, it, it was new and therefore scary. But the fact that it was visual and tangible and physical and and there it was like this physical manifestation of that fear, that was probably the the biggest challenge to overcome,
2: yeah, wow. I think it's funny. you, you talk before about these cultural norms with rent money, dead money. I think the weirdest thing, and I don't know if it happens in the states, but, you know, people here will say, oh, I don't invest in shares because it's risky. I won't mm-hmm. put money in shares, but I'll blindly walk in, borrow $450,000 <laughs> and buy an investment property in the street next door. It could be the worst <laughs> investment in the world. And I, I just don't get it. So <laughs> oh, anyway, don't get me started. I just think it's <laughs> hilarious. And I'm not having a go at anyone out there. It's just an observation of the way that we perceive risk. And if, it's tu- if we can touch it, oh, it can't be that risky, but property always goes up, right? But do you yeah. use, <laughs> do you use debt to fund your properties or uh, are you at the point where you're cash flowing them? What are you doing there?
0: Uh, yes, I use debt, especially in the beginning, I uh, use debt to in, or, in order to get started. My position on debt is is pretty middle of the road. So you have yeah. people like Dave Ramsey, you know, he, Dave Ramsey's a popular radio host who says no debt ever, ever, ever. And then you have people like Robert Kiyosaki, he's the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, and he says as much. You I know, mean, I'm exaggerating yeah. <laughs> a little bit, but he basically <laughs> says as take on as much debt as you can, use other people's money.
2: OPM, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. OPM, other people's money.
2: Uh, yeah.
0: Um, and my position on debt is somewhere in the in between those two. I, I find both of them to occupy. Um, two ends of the extreme, and I'm, you know, I I think that it is reasonable to, particularly when you're getting started, you know, to use debt to help you ascend to some t- to something better than what you could otherwise create. Yeah. Um, for a lot of people, and and you see this, uh, you see this, not you know, even in in like micro lending in uh, the developing world, you know, sometimes a small loan. Is all it takes to help somebody ascend to a higher social class or a higher social status than what they were born into, mm. and and not that I'm comparing, you know, like middle class people in the United States to a micro lending project in Nepal, but you know I I understand there are many many differences between those two, but the concept of using a very small, very reasonable amount of debt. That is strategically invested in such a way that you could, it can help you break out of, you know, the, the, you know, the, the confines of the social class that you were born into and get into, you know, something slightly more elevated than, Mm. than the position of your birth. That's something I recommend, you know, as long as it's done reasonably.
2: Yeah. Do you uh, do you buy your properties local to you, interstate? And what type of stock do you have in your portfolio? Are you mainly doing condos, freehold properties, industrial, commercial? What type of investments do you have and like?
0: Mm. So, I uh, started out buying locally in... Um, I was living in Atlanta and I was buying locally in Atlanta. And then about five years ago, I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, which is 2,000 miles away. And uh, at the time that I moved, a lot of people asked, you know, like, oh, are are you going to sell what you have in Atlanta? Honestly, I love being out of town um, because being out of town, being 2,000 miles away, forces me to treat it like a business. Mm. You know, if I'm, when I was local, if something went wrong, if the fire uh, alarm needed new batteries, I could just drive there and stick some new batteries in the fire alarm um, is the smoke detector the smoke yeah. detector? Uh, whereas, if I'm two thousand miles away, I can't do that. I can't just drive over there and and handle something, mm. which means that I have to put systems in place. I have to build a team, and I have to have systems, and I have to build a process, and I have to truly treat it like a business and not just like a hobby. And so that I think is the value of being um, out of town. So that's yeah. that's the answer to the first question. And to the second part of it, I've only ever had involvement in residential. Um, so I've, I have no experience in any type of commercial real estate. So warehouses, mobile home parks, office spaces, retail spaces, large apartment buildings, you know, that are 10 units or 12 units mm. or 100 units. Um, I've, I've no experience in anything that would be classified as commercial.
2: With your property managers, given their interstate, uh, do you have a a threshold as like only call me for repairs over five hundred dollars or
0: Yeah, we actually have that written into the contract where they they are authorized to make decisions up to five hundred dollars without contacting me.
2: Yeah, great. Sounds like I was, um, yeah, did some research on yeah. US property management, <laughs> you, and then I just plucked you, out at thin you actually, air. <laughs> you
0: nailed it with the $500. That's exactly the arrangement that we have. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: So before we finish up, and I want to talk to you about moving into your dream life, the ebook that you have, uh, what's your philosophy on giving and generosity?
0: Oh, I love it. Um, it's something that I actively want to encourage. And, again, in in the U.S., there's a certain vehicle. It's called a donor-advised fund. Uh, And it is a vehicle in which you can contribute money into this this fund, this particular fund, and then you can manage that money and and invest it. And all of the money that's inside of that fund must go to charity. Technically, once you put money inside of a donor-advised fund, that money is no longer yours. So you can continue to grow that money you can continue to invest it but it's no longer legally it is no longer yours it is money that
2: so are you are you set up as like a trustee of that fund is that how that works
0: yeah yeah so you're set up you're you're what's referred to as the grantor of that fund and you can make recommendations as to how it's going to be invested which realistically those recommendations will be carried out yeah and then uh, when you are ready to take the proceeds of those investments and give it to, let's say, the a, a food bank or an um, animal shelter or whatever charity you choose, you can then make a recommendation as to what that recipient charity will be. Now, technically, technically, it is no longer your money, which means... Which is why the vocabulary is that you're making a recommendation rather than giving an order or giving a command. You Mm. don't have the right to give an order or a command because it no longer belongs to you. But realistically, whatever you recommend will be carried out. Yes. And so the benefit of a donor advised fund is that you can uh, front load many years worth of um, charitable giving into Right now, you know, if if you have the space in your budget for it, you can give a whole bunch to charity right now. Keep it inside of this fund, manage the investments, allow those investments to grow, and then at a time when uh, the market is doing really well and the investments have grown quite a bit, um, you know, and you you feel like this is the appropriate time to give, then at, it's at that point that you can make the recommendation that you want. Uh, portion of the money to go to such and such charity. So, for example, just last week, um, I, re- made, I made a recommendation for a charity called Garidad, which is a, um, they're like homeless advocates yeah, based in Las Vegas, Nevada. And so they basically work with the homeless population of downtown Las Vegas. Um, and so I made a recommendation to my donor advised fund saying, hey, I want money to go to them. And then the donor advised fund sent them a letter saying that I had sent money through the fund. Uh, am sending this money to them.
2: Yeah, right. So I think in Australia, for everyone listening, it's probably similar to setting up a foundation, mm-hmm. uh, where you know there's a framework and it's on trust with for the benefit of um, the recipients. Now I'll, I'll trust that you couldn't make the recommendation to give uh, some money to your next door neighbour. It would have to be registered charity.
0: Yes. Yeah, yep. it has to be an IRS, uh, uh, IRS qualified charity. So the taxing authority has to approve it.
2: And any money you transfer over to that, is that deductible to you on yes, your it tax? Is. Yeah.
0: Yes, it is. Um, and so what a lot of people do, myself included, is uh, if, if you have an income that fluctuates year to year, then in a year where you make more money than you otherwise do, um, that's the perfect year to make a really big contribution because... If you are are making more like like let's say over the span of three years, there's one out of those three years that you just make more, you know, you make more than usual. Yeah. Right. That means that not only are you going to be taxed at a higher rate, but also you have more money to give because you're you made more than usual. Yeah. So it's that perfect combination of factors where the year that you have more to give is also the year that you have a high that you're in a higher tax bracket. So, it's a perfect combination of factors to make you, um, to, to motivate you to give more in that year.
2: Yeah, that's um, interesting. And I might put that on my 2021 agenda to look at a foundation myself because it's something that's been in the back of my mind for, for some time. Now, I, I just think it's funny, like, then the reason I mentioned giving and generosity, like, so for me in Australia on the money scene, mm-hmm. I really want to make it, that we talk about giving and generosity because I see so many uh, of the money people out there and they put their diagrams of, I spend this much each month and that, but they just don't even look at giving and generosity. And I think when we just focus on accruing wealth for our own gain and pleasure and all that, it's, it's a dangerous thing uh, when there's people worse off.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one other thing that I think is important is um, making, it sounds very formal when you call it a giving plan mm. but there are people who they like to really plan out what type of giving they're going to do they have basically uh, a budget uh, you know that they this is the amount of money that they want to give every year and they want to do research and you know they they want it to be very logical and orderly and structured and then you have people who are on the opposite end of the the spectrum where they're very emotional givers they give from their heart um it's often very spontaneous it's very impulsive um and then you have like people like me who's kind of a blend of both um and and that can actually be part of your giving plan mm. like your giving plan could be that you're you know you have a goal of setting aside a certain amount of money and this is the money that you want to give and then maybe 50% of that is going to go is going to go to places that's orderly and logical and structured and that you've researched, but then the other fifty percent is yours to give, kind of spontaneously in the ways that your heart guides you to throughout the year. Mm. Um, if you do that, I think it's important to have certain deadlines in place. Yep. Like one thing that I like about the fact that December tends to be such a, a big giving season is that essentially, I think a lot of people kind of have this mentality of, oh, I want to give a certain amount of money this year. And so right, right as you get to New Year's, you're like, oh, okay, I've got three days left, um, but I still have this much money left in my giving budget for the year. And I think yeah. having those deadlines is important because giving is a muscle and you can't just wait until the end of your life to do it because then realistically, you probably won't. So like any muscle, you have to exercise it regularly.
2: I love that. And for those who aren't aware, the US financial year runs calendar, January to December, where in Australia, it's uh, June to July or July to June.
0: I I had no idea.
2: Yeah. So, our end of financial year, 30 June, you know, we don't want to be on Christmas holidays. You know, (laughs) But I guess that's different because you guys have the summer break. So, your holiday season is the middle of the year. Uh, Yeah.
0: Well, and then I guess yours is in the middle of winter.
2: Totally. So... (laughs) There you go. And I just want to encourage everyone like, if you can't remember the last time you did something generous for someone or some organization, it's time to act again. And that's kind of what I do in my own life. If I can't remember the last time, well, that's dangerous and you you've got to do that. Your escape ebook. Talk to mm-hmm. us about that. Make moving into your dream life.
0: Yes. So this is a book that I wrote um, about. The desire that a lot of people feel um to do something bigger and bolder and better than the life that I think many of us have just kind of fallen into. You know, so many people reach adulthood. You know, when you're a little kid, a lot of little kids, you, you want to be a grown-up. And then and then you reach those grown-up years and you're like, really? Is this all there is? You go to sleep, you wake up, you go to work, you fight traffic. Maybe if you're lucky, you watch a funny movie, (laughs) like, and uh, it can just feel frustrating. Like, am I really looking down the barrel of another 40 years of this? And so I wrote this book, which is free for everybody who, who has that feeling and wants to do something more interesting, something bigger, something bolder, something outside of themselves or beyond themselves. Um, So if you want to escape the nine to five, um, if you want to escape the drudgery, escape the boredom, um, escape mediocrity, then this this book, which is free, is uh, a really good place to get started in terms of feeding that vision and then getting a step by step uh, framework as to what you can actually do in order to ascend to the next level
2: yeah and I think the yes we're in different countries but the principles are all the same right
0: exactly exactly
2: yeah so there you go we'll put a link in the show notes uh to Paula's website and uh the podcast uh but before we go a listener of the show Laura Pierce she wanted to say hi she's a big fan she's been of course uh, thank you so much for some time and I was chatting to her so there you go Laura says hi
0: Oh, hi Laura! Thank you so much for saying hello. Good to <laughs> good to hear from you.
2: <laughs> well, everyone, you can uh, check out the Afford Anything podcast wherever you're listening to this, and you can follow Paula on Instagram at Paula Pant, yeah, or at Afford Anything, whatever one it is. <laughs> uh, on in,
0: yeah, on on Instagram, I'm at paulapant. Awesome. Um, and then, yeah, you can search for the Afford Anything podcast by just typing in Afford Anything into your favorite podcast player.
2: Love it. Paula, thank you so much for having a chat with us today.
1: No worries. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.
2: My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you aren't sure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au.